be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things are created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Literally, that says hang together. Christ sustains all things. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether there be things of the earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled and the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So we're going to review here. Uh, if you look at the handout, you'll see in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as preeminent, supreme over all, absolutely superior to all things. And this statement of supremacy in verses 15 through 18 focus on these three statements. Number one, uh, verse 15a, Christ is in the image of God. That means he is God. He's deity. Uh, Christ is the Lord of creation. He's the creator, 15b to 17. In verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Paul uses these three major statements to declare that Christ is supreme over all. He is preeminent. And item B, verses 19 through 23, chapter 1, this is where we are now. These, uh, chapter, these verses present the basis or grounds for the supremacy of Christ. Verse 19 begins with for, and that literally means because. Uh, for it pleased the Father that in him all uh, fullness dwell. And that has a sense of because. It indicates that the rest of the verses in this passage are the explanation and reasons for the supremacy of Christ previously described in 15 through 18. Those three uh, statements that Paul made here. So 15 through 18 are the supremacy, and verses 19 through 23 reflect the sufficiency, the capability, the ability, so the sufficiency of Christ. Um, in context of the divine will, because it says it pleased the Father, and that indicates his will, in the context of the divine will, God's will, Paul affirms it was God's will or decree the last part of verse 18, that Christ only be supreme in being the firstborn from the dead, first to be raised from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So God's will continues to be highlighted or reflected in verses 19 through 23. One scholar said Christ's supremacy was so arranged in the providence of God or his will. So the sufficiency of Christ uh, is there because of his supremacy, okay? And uh, item C, 
Paul describes a basis for Christ's supremacy, and he directly emphasized God's will in two things in verses 19 through 23. In verse 19, the fullness of God in Christ, and that word's translated pleroma. We're going to look at that again. And then the reconciling work of Christ, 20 through 23. These two things show the sufficiency of Christ uh, as a reflection of his supremacy, okay? God's will for the supremacy of Christ. This is still review. The fullness of Christ in verse 19, uh, the word pleased or pleasure, Christ is supreme because it was the good pleasure of the Father, his will, that, that in him, Christ, all the fullness dwell. Now, this is a verb. It's surprising because it, it, it doesn't look like that in English, but things in Greek don't often, uh, that's where that saying came from, it's Greek to me. Things don't come from Greek to English word for word sometimes. The words can't be expressed real well. But it is a verb, and it pleased the Father, and it's an exercise of his will, uh, the good pleasure of, uh, it was the good pleasure is how it's translated. It was God's will that in Christ all the fullness dwell. Now, the word fullness is pleroma, and it's used 17 times in the New Testament, but only four times uh, with a meaning in line with this passage. And I've written those down for you, A, B, C, D. And the last one is the fullness of deity, um, and that's the passage that reflects that um, the fullness of God is, is, in, is in him bodily. And we'll look at it in just a second. So this fullness in this context means, I've written in this par last paragraph on page one, that uh, it is God in his fullness, full nature of God, the totality of the divine powers and attributes, God in the completeness of his being, uh, and the whole of the divine powers and perfections. Let's look at page two. Uh, verse 19, number three at the top. Um, all, Paul states that all the fullness dwells in Christ. Now, this is significant because the Gnostics said, well, they're really, and contrary to the truth, has her, heresy, they said wrongly, that there's all these spirit beings between the space between God and man. And um, they possess some type of measure of deity. Uh, they did not, the Gnostics did not believe that Christ was God, uh, the creator and the head of the church. And they didn't believe that he was the only mediator between God and man. And we know that's wrong. But that's what Paul's refuting. And as we talked about, Paul didn't say, this is Gnosticism and this is what's wrong. He said, here's the truth and this is what's right. Um, a man named Curtis Vaughn said, it's significant that Paul says all the fullness dwells in Christ. The Gnostic heretics parceled out deity among many spirit beings thought of as filling the space between God and the world. They looked on these powers as intermediaries and taught that any communication between God and the world had to pass through them somehow. Now, it's hard to believe that somebody could believe that, but that's, that's what they were teaching. And it was based on this uh, Oriental mysticism and Greek philosophy and, and Hebrew uh, uh, legalism. This 
probably included Christ among the supernatural powers, admitting that he was of heavenly origin and God was in some sense present in him. Christ was, however, according to them, only one aspect of the divine nature and in himself was not, they believed he was not sufficient for all the needs of man. Paul, in contrast, declares that deity is not distributed among a hierarchy of powers. Christ is not just one of many divine beings. He is the one mediator between God and the world and all, not part, but all of the attributes and activities of God are centered in him. He is God. He is in the image of God. He's the creator. He's the head of the church. Uh, Paul is proclaiming Christ is supreme, and now he's talking about him being sufficient. He is sufficient as evidenced by the fullness of God in Christ and the reconciling work of Christ. Okay, Uh, number four, dwell. This is translated from a Greek word which means to settle down or abide in a dwelling or residence and to take permanent residence. And it's not merely a temporary stay. It's used in here in Colossians uh, 2.9 that I uh, quoted earlier. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, that's Christ, dwelleth, there's our word, dwelleth, takes permanent residence, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ, all of God resides or dwells. Not merely a temporary stay, but the indwelling of the totality of the attributes and powers of God, of the Godhead in Christ, W.E. Vine. Vine's expository dictionary says that. So Paul was refuting the heresy that taught that the divine fullness, the deity, was transitory and temporary in Christ. God had pleasure in the indwelling of all the divine powers and attributes in the Son. Lightfoot, quote, Uh, Paul is saying that God, the Father's will and pleasure that all the fullness of the deity, the Godhead, dwells and resides in permanent bodily form in Christ. Okay, 7C, MacArthur. Uh, Paul is showing that God, that Christ is in God in verses 15 through 19. And he closes that section for in him should all fullness dwell, because that's what pleased the Father. He's not a spirit. He is, MacArthur says, he is able. Now, this is not in your handout. This is a quote. He is able. In other words, he's sufficient. He is able only and without any other assistance to reconcile men to God. And that's the point that Paul wants to make. He is totally sufficient. Okay, Uh, looking at item B in the center of page 2, verses 20 through 23, and I'm kind of counting this as new because we went over this at the end of what we went to uh, last week. The second basis or reason for Christ's supremacy is his work of reconciliation. Uh, Verse 20 says, "And, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether there be things in the earth or things in heaven. So the father was pleased by him 
to uh, reconcile all things unto himself. First part of verse 20. The verse is, this verse is close connected to 19. The verb, for it pleased, is actually uh, connected with to reconcile and um, that, um, let's see, the verb to dwell in, sorry, it says, for it pleased the Father that in him all should, that all the fullness dwell. That verb to dwell is is really parallel with to reconcile in verse 20. So the sense is that it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him, that in Christ, all fullness should dwell, and it pleased the Father also, parallel, to reconcile all things to himself. So it's kind of hard to see, and we're not all grammar fans, I know, because you get out of school and you say, hooray, it's all of grammar, but we... We run afoul of it all the time. I know I do. So it pleased the Father that the fullness of Christ should dwell in, in, in him and also the fullness of God should dwell in Christ and also that, that, that Christ should reconcile all things to himself. So grammatically, those are connected. You have the verb, it pleased the Father, so it was his will to reconcile, and it was will, his will for the fullness to dwell. And that's going to be number three in the handout. Look at number three. You're right. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to talk about it, but if I don't answer the question, let me know. So, yeah, yeah, no. Good, no, you're right, you're on track. You're right on the track. Okay. So I just want to give you this quote. One interesting thing, and I had never thought of this, only in, Vaughn says, Dr. Vaughn, only in the one whom the divine fullness dwelled, that's Christ, could accomplish reconciliation. So Paul in his sentence said it pleased, it, it was the will of God that in Christ the fullness dwell, so he was fully God, and then also he reconciled the world to himself are all things. So he had to have the fullness before he could reconcile. And that's why there's such an attack on Christ by all the cults and false religions because they want to deny that so that they can create their own scheme. So number two, by or through him, verse 20, Christ possessed the divine fullness and was the divine agent for reconciliation. It was by or through Christ. Now, I found uh, a, uh, one uh, reference that it was through the intervention of the Son that reconciliation was possible. So to reconcile, number three. Now, MacArthur defines reconciliation or to reconcile as restoration of a right relationship between a man and God, a man and a woman, okay? So, a person and God. Now, uh, verse 20, reconcile means to change from enmity, or being an enemy, to friendship. Uh, it refers to bringing about a change in, in a man or a woman of a condition of submission to 
and harmony with God. And we look at we look at uh, Romans five ten. <clears throat> but stay in Colossians. Okay, hold on. For if, if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then verses 18 through 20 of 2 Corinthians 5. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, the gospel. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So your question. Yeah, well, yeah, because Paul, you, somebody uses the argument that uh, I think Galatians in it about uh, uh, I forget where it is, but Abraham believed by faith even before the law, right. and and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And certainly that uh, that whole picture of of Abraham or uh, uh, Isaac offering his son and uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, in Romans. Yeah, that was in Romans. So, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There are many foreshadowings in the in the Old Testament of Christ's coming and uh, types, if you will, things that foreshadowed uh, Christ's coming. Um, um, you know, uh, talks about uh, eight souls saved by water. You know, the 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 uh, the ark, and uh, there are many types of Christ and many foreshadowings. They say that uh, I'm not prepared to quote this, but I believe it's the uh, Old Testament is a New Testament. See that in the New Testament is in the Old Testament contained, and the New Testament is uh, the Old Testament is a New Testament explained. That makes sense. You know. Did I do that right? Okay. In the Old Testament, we we see, what does that mean? But then in the New Testament, you see the fulfillment of the types and everything is leading towards Christ. And they were expecting Messiah and all of the prophecies. And uh, then in the New Testament, uh, we could see the Old Testament explained. So, but the New Testament is in the Old Testament contained. Right. So, okay. So, um I don't have any specific examples off the top of my head other than I think of the sacrificing of the son and, and God providing uh, the sacrifice right at the last minute. But you know, every offering, the whole temple, everything foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of atonement, even the, the offerings and everything, the, the labor, you know, the cleansing and all of, all of the thing, every, everything in the, in the, in the temple. So, 
Uh, did, did you have any others? No, no, I okay, didn't yeah. I saw a few things that when I was looking at this, but uh, uh, nothing comes to mind specifically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Chapter one, Romans. Even that's mentioned in Colossians uh, because the the uh, the Hebrews, the Jews, became so entrenched in following the law that when Christ came and as the Messiah, they couldn't accept him because they they wanted a king, they didn't want a savior, and all of those all of those offerings and everything that was done uh, in that economy of of of, the, of Israel was pointed towards Christ. And uh, he came and they missed it and they rejected him. And uh, he turned to the Gentiles. Okay, so uh, reconcile means uh, to change from enmity to friendship refers to a bringing about of a change of a condition or submission to and harmony with God. Now in verse 20 and 21, right here, it's used in a different word. The normal word for all you Greek fans is uh, katalasso. It's K-A-T-A-L-A-S-S-O, katalasso. And that means to change or exchange. But the word here has a prefix on it that makes it more intense. Apo, A-P-O, apo katalasso, A-P-O, K-A-T-A-L-A, two L's, L-L-A-S-O, two S's, two L's and two S's. So K-A-P-O, K-A-T-A, L-L-A-S-S-O. It means to change thoroughly, completely. And Paul uses this emphatic form of the word to, to affirm for sure the completeness and the sufficiency of Christ's reconciliation and also to eliminate the thought of the need to supplement in any way what Christ did. It was sufficient for our salvation. That we don't need any more reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Okay, turning over to page three of the handout. Okay, top of the page. Now, you see this is the longest paragraph because this is this is a challenge. So, um, I am going to, you're going to be a, I'm going to ask you to be a theologian today because I'm going to, at the end of this paragraph, I'm going to propose uh, something and let you evaluate it and see what you think. And so, you ready? So turn on, wake up, turn on your ears, as they used to say, put on your thinking caps or whatever. Verse 20, all things. The word all things is in here. We often jump over that, um, that, um, and that he is to, he, uh, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things, okay, unto himself. Now, this word of reconciliation is certainly wide in scope then. It involves all things in heaven and earth. Now, much Speculation has it really occurred according to what this means. Now, if you say everything, all things are reconciled, it makes you think, well, doesn't that then mean all people are going to be saved? 
No, it doesn't. We know that this doesn't, it can't teach universalism because the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 25, 46 uh, said that um, they, that um, people were going to be going to eternal punishment uh, for their actions. Let me find that. Matthew 25, 46. Stay in Colossians 1. I'll read that. Okay, so, um, and I'm going to shorten it. Verse 45, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So that's one instance of a place where we know in the Scripture that he himself said, some people are going to go to eternal punishment for not following me and doing what my, my, my commands. So, so we know that this can't teach universal, universalism. Now, universalism means that everyone is going to be saved, but it's not consistent with Scripture. So uh, there's the exception. So it must mean something else. So... What most people, most scholars believe, and I, I believe this, that the passage reflects on the complete significance upon Christ's work for the universe and all creation. Because it says things, so it's not just people. And they think, well, how can things need reconciling? Well, let's look. Um, Romans 8.19 talks about um, 19 through 22. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Um, and verse 22, for we know that the whole world of the whole creation groaneth, not people, but the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So there's evidence that the world is waiting for the uh, reconciliation at the end of the world. And uh, Paul talks about the whole created universe waiting with eager expectation for God's sons to be revealed and the universe itself to be freed from the bondage and corruption and enter into the liberty of God. In other words, disorder will be done away with and harmony restored. And the same idea is in uh Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. And this is where it talks about verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And verse 9, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So sin had a profoundly harmful effect on the world, which we don't fully understand. We know what the effect was on man. We know that there was a curse too. But Christ, Ryrie says, Christ is the remedy for the alienation from God. And that's what reconciliation helps do away with, is that alienation from enmity to friend. So Christ is a remedy 
for the alienation from God, and all things in end times will be brought into a unity in Christ. That's a quote from Ryrie. First uh, Colossians, excuse me, First Corinthians, there are no First Colossians, First Corinthians 15, uh, then cometh the end when he hath delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. It goes on to verse 28 as well. So the idea here in verse 20 is that all things eventually will be subdued to God's will and serve his divine purposes. Um, let me um, read a quote from MacArthur. The Bible says right here that God is going to reconcile everything back to himself. If you want the simplest explanation, God is going to make friends with the universe again. The, that's the broad idea of reconciliation. God is going to end the rebellion at the end times and make friends with the universe. It's going to, be, it's going to come back into harmony. How is he going to do it? By him. By whom? By Christ. Christ is the agent. He will carry out reconciliation. So, uh, the phrase, things in earth or things in heaven, refers to all the created universe that has been stained and corrupted by sin in ways the Lord only knows, uh, but will be ultimately restored. And Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that it at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth uh, and things under the earth. And every, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, Jesus will have, uh, that passage states, God will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll have a name above every other name and he will be exalted. So an answer to the question this can't teach universalism. How then do we explain that all things are being reconciled? Because we know some people are going to be going to eternal condemnation in hell. Well, the answer is, is that at the end times, all things will be reconciled, according to Scripture, as in these passages that we read. Um, so, that's, that's an answer to that, that question, all things. Now, I have another one, too. So, this is where you're going to be the theologian. Okay, are you ready? This is going to really require some thought on your part. So, um, <laughs> that's, that's also called listening. Okay, so, um, the, I found a, um, a, num a group of scholars that stated that I came across this. Um, it said, and this is a note in Schofield, second uh, Schofield Bible of 66 or 67. So this is not inspired. This is a footnote. But I want you to think about this from a theology standpoint. Okay? You're the theologian. Is this true? 
uh, does it conflict with what the doctrines that we know that we should believe, orth orthodox doctrine? Is this an apostate statement or is it, is it something it could be? So the word translated reconcile, katalaso, means to change thoroughly and in various form occurs in it has a whole string of scripture. A study of these passages referred to above indicates that the work of God involves two distinct reconciliations. So he's going to say, this passage, is going to, this uh, note is going to say, there are two reconciliations, okay, or two aspects of reconciliation, if you will, okay? So let's see what he says. Number one, the reconciliation accomplished at Calvary. God was in the world, or God was in Christ, rather, reconciling the world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Here, in this reconciliation, God was not changed, for he had always loved the world, nor was the world changed, because it continued in sinful rebellion against God. But, he says, by the death, excuse me, by the death of Christ, the relationship between God and the world was changed because the barrier of sin being taken away judicially enabled God to show mercy where judgment was deserved. This reconciliation was the work of God alone, and man had no part in it. And so he's saying the first one is when Christ died and rose again, he, his sacrifice uh, changed the barrier between God and man of sin in that now it was possible for reconciliation to take place. He removed, he removed the barrier. He didn't remove the sin or the penalty or the, or, or for those that didn't believe. That makes sense? He removed the barrier. Judicially, he removed the barrier. Okay? So the second, the second aspect. Um, there's a reconciliation wrought by God and the sinner himself, whereby he becomes changed in his, the sinner becomes changed in his rebellious attitude towards God so that he is persuaded to receive the reconciliation already accomplished through Christ and the cross. In this ministry of, the recon of reconciling the sinner, Christians have a part. We know that. I just read it. Being ambassadors for Christ, bearing the word of reconciliation committed to them, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and beseeching men, be ye reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we judicially have a barrier removed that has no effect except to open the possibility for man to be saved by asking God to save him. And so then re reconciliation, the first aspect of it, was accomplished at the cross. The second part of it is when a person take, lays hold of that and asks God to forgive him, then he is reconciled to God. So, so you have two different aspects of that. Now, is that inconsistent with Scripture? I, I couldn't find anything that was inconsistent because it's very careful to say God was not changed on the first, man was not changed, the barrier was changed. And, and so then it became effective. So that's also another answer for this. Uh, but think on that. Uh, 
and see what you think about that. You know, meditate on that. Pastors ask us to meditate on things. And, uh, uh, but that only becomes effective when the second aspect of reconciliation takes place when a person accepts Christ as his, sacri- as his Savior. Um, okay, so you're the theologian. You think of that. Is that, is that, um, I actually ran that by the pastor before I brought it here. <laughs> so, so it's probably not inconsistent with scripture, but he's still thinking about, well, I don't know. Let me think about that. So, and I'm still thinking about it, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. But, you know, we'll not, we don't, may not know for sure this side of heaven, but, but it's wonderful to think about, you know? So, so you're the theologian. You decide if you accept that or not. All right. Number five, uh, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now that phrase, you know, in English and Spanish and other languages, sometimes the subject is first and sometimes the verb is first and sometimes some other thing is first that they want to emphasize. Well, in Greek, this is kind of uh, backwards. I think that the order is, and through the intervention of the Son to reconcile all things to himself, making peace with believers through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or whether things in heaven. I, I think that's the order. That's why I started with having made uh, with the reconciliation first. So having made peace through the blood of his cross, verse 20, this phrase describes the means, the how reconciliation is accomplished. Having made peace refers to the ideas that are related to reconciliation, central to reconciliation, such as alienation. We're alienated from God. We're enemies of God. We're resistant to God. We have, there's disharmony. And that's being changed in rec- reconciliation to friendship, fellowship, and harmony. Peace is made by the action of the Father through the Son. The blood of his cross refers to the redemptive work uh, and the... Uh, of, of Christ on the cross and emphasizing the sacrificial nature of his death. And blood also recalls the covenant relationship between God and man that we see in Exodus 24, 6 through 8, where he actually, uh, Moses goes out and actually shakes the blood uh, that, and from the sacrifice on the people as they accept the covenant and said, we will obey that. Now I want to read you one of the best overall quotes that I found regarding this passage covers almost everything we talked about and some things we haven't. So this is from Charles Erdman, not a well-known scholar, um, but um, um, I'll read this. Having set forth the preeminence of Christ and his being the image of God, the creator of the universe and the head of the church, Paul now shows his preeminence, Christ's preeminence, in view of his redeeming work. The nature of this work is that the evidence of his redeeming work is reconciliation. Its means, how he did it, is the death of Christ. Its purpose is the holiness of believers. Its human condition, what it looks like in in humans, is faith, faith in Christ. This paragraph, verses 19 through 23, is bound to the preceding by the statement, for it was the good pleasure, it pleased God, uh, it pleased the Father, that in him all the fullness dwell. 
only a divine Lord could be the head of the church. None but a divine Savior could reconcile a world to God. Such seems to be the meaning and such the connection of these impressive words. The fullness denotes the sum totals of the power and attributes of God. All these are said to reside in Christ. The word dwell indicates not a temporary but a permanent residence. The indwelling of God in Christ is quite different from those shadowy and unreal transient incarnations of which Oriel mysticism dreamed and still dreams. In Christ are embodied forever all the grace, all the love, all the wisdom, and all the might of the eternal God. The abiding fullness is due to the good pleasure of the Father, his will. It was, his, it was the purpose of God and was well-pleasing to God that the divine nature in its, all its fullness dwell in the Son. It made his saving work possible, and that work has its origin in the love and the grace of God. The ultimate purpose of the Father was to reconcile all things to himself through the work of his Son, his Son, this reconciliation meant the removal of all the estrangements, the barriers between God and man. The barriers included both the sinful impenitence, lack of repentance, and God's displeasure with sin. The difficulty on both sides were removed by the death of Christ, who made peace through the blood of his cross. It is this cross which reveals the love of God, which touches the human heart and awakens a love for God and a desire to do his holy will. Man needed to be reconciled to God, but God took the initiative. And he goes on to say, In all other religions of the world, men are seeking God. In Christianity, God is seeking men. He has undertaken the work of reconciliation. He has removed the obstacles. He has provided an atonement for sin. He has issued his appeal, and he has sent forth the gospel messengers who beseech men for Christ's sake be to be reconciled to God. Oh, that, that, that really sums up that passage. Um, okay. The reconciling work of Christ in relation to the Colossians. And I'm going to stop there because um, I'm going to stop there. <laughs>